Hi, this is Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book per year of the 20th century. This week, our book is Ariel by Sylvia Plath, first published in 1965. Uh, we have a guest today also. We are talking to Elisa Gabbert, who has several books out, both poetry and essays. Her latest is The Unreality of Memory from FSG Originals. You can also read her work all over the place, but I'll highlight her regular poetry column in the New York Times because it's wonderful. Uh, and just before we begin the conversation, we do talk about suicide and self-harm in this episode. All right, on to the book. So, Elisa, you're an actual poet, and you've spent a lot of time working on Sylvia Plath topics lately. You've written uh, about the new biography, uh, Red Comet. Can you give us a sense of where she fits into 20th century poetry, stylistically, thematically? Yeah, yeah. She um, She's usually associated with the confessional poets, you know, kind of Robert Lowell, John Berryman, Anne Sexton, and there's good reason for her to be situated in that tradition in the sense that she knew those people. <laughs> she uh, yeah. she famously took a workshop that Robert Lowell led, and Anne Sexton was in that class as well. And Sylvia and Anne became friends and continued to share their work afterwards. Um, I think her work feels very different from theirs, like particularly Anne Sexton's, but really Robert Lowell's too. Um, insofar as I am familiar with Robert Lowell's work, he's never really been one of my favorites. Um, so I'm pretty familiar with his work uh, because I read that book of his letters to Elizabeth Bishop a lot. It's like oh, a, yeah, yeah. a habitual read for me. And um, I find them so different that I almost... It's like uh, Sylvia Plath seemed to have come from another planet to me. Uh-huh. Before I read this book, just having only read her sort of greatest hits like Daddy or Lady Lazarus, they seemed so different than Robert Lowell or Elizabeth Bishop. I, I was like, are they actually in the same tradition? So I don't think, um, I don't think she took their work really as inspiration. I think that she was more influenced by English poets. Um, so she, I mean, she did a lot of her writing, obviously living in England, like when she first read Ted Hughes' work, it totally blew her away and it made her kind of reconsider her whole um, over up until then, she was like, I'm trash, I'm nothing, this is the shit. <laughs> she was like absolutely thrilled by Ted Hughes' poetry. Um, she kind of discovered him and made him famous, really. She was the one who sent his first poetry manuscript into a bunch of publishers to get it published. And she had this like, she had this feeling that it was going to get published, that it was going to win this contest, that the 92Y, uh, the, 90, the 92nd Street Y um, was sponsoring, and it did, it won. And so his first book was published before hers. But, She's um, like the Lee Krasner of his life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and in England, he was, um, he was really considered more kind of successful and famous than her. And she was sort of a, a hanger-on. Like, they would go to parties, and he would be like, oh, my wife's a poet, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was uh, – no, sorry, she was really influenced by him and his, like, little crew, his little um, – Cambridge, I think it was Cambridge, not Oxford, crew. And um, she also loved like Yeats and um, Auden. Those were the people that she frequently cited as influences. I do think that her work has a lot of, um, it's in conversation with Wallace Stevens, which I'm not actually sure if she 
was like cognizant of that, if that was an intentional influence or not. Um, I think that she might have liked Stevens, but I think there's a lot of... So, sorry, can I just ask, what are features of work that make you know that it connects to Stevens? Like, yeah. What, what do you look at and say, um, like, oh, that's like... Well, so, like, Stevens has this real knack for kind of, um, like, an aphoristic image mm. that I think... Plath, I'm, I'm trying to find a good example. So I, I thought that the the moon and the yew tree, which is, I believe, the oldest poem in Ariel, that starts with such a Stevensy kind of line. It starts with, this is the light of the mind, cold and planetary. The trees of the mind are black. That's so Stevensy, mm-hmm. like um, one must have true. a mind of winter or um, just, you know, uh, blackbirds and trees <laughs> like that's just like a very Stevensy type thing to have this um this image that also feels like this kind of emotional symbol like a like an objective correlative so yeah and and that there's kind of a like a like a dark humor in her work that I also associate with the Stevens and just this very kind of philosophical bent which um, I think kind of increased as as she got older I think her early work was often just sort of like so fussily formal in a way. And she like hadn't really found her, um, her subject matter yet. She just didn't like, she didn't have a great sense of what made a good occasion for a poem. <laughs> so she That's would just, really interesting. she would, you know, just like go for a walk on the beach and, um, and try to make this grand poem out of it. But it was like, well, nothing interesting happened. And so it wasn't until like, you know, she started experiencing, um, well, it's, you know, it's weird because she did have tragedy in her life, but for some reason it's like it didn't hit until she was closer to 30, um, that she knew how to really turn all that kind of emotional pain and turmoil into, into great poetry. Yeah, that um, it's, it's pretty hard to avoid in, I guess, how she's read. Uh, I guess having been Sylvia Plath reading age, in the like early 2000s, I want to say, I think that she had this role in society where um, she was sort of seen as the person that would be read by girls who want to be angry rather mm-hmm. than necessarily um, that what she's describing is authentic or necessary. But like uh, the character from Ten Things I Hate About You, like wasn't she reading Sylvia Plath all the time? <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's cultural shorthand for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so Sandy, um, you you had some stuff to talk about um, about kind of how she's read and the, like the cultural role. Yeah, I have like my experience with Plath is like the most on brand possible. Platt reading experience, I think, like in this very kind of pure, almost ridiculous way, because I mean, for one thing, I was born in the year in which Ariel was published. So just just to say that we have the same birthday in a way. (laughs) But um, beautiful. (laughs) Celebrity. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, when when I was reading Ariel for the first time, it was probably the I think it was the first book of contemporary poetry I ever read that I they had it in our school library for some reason. Um, and at that time, like my mother, my own mother had committed suicide the year before. So like everything in my life was about suicide. And, she, and my mother had actually 
like Platt, attempted suicide before. She, she actually attempted suicide six times before she finally successfully killed herself. And it was, awful. yeah, it was, it was pretty awful. But, um, but anyway, it was, but it was not just my personal story because it was at the time when it, in the, I guess, late seventies, when girls were discovering suicide and self-harm and anorexia and all of these ways of that you could attack the female body in order to express things, you know, things that you felt could not otherwise be seen. It was a way to be visible as a, as a person. Um, and that became a sort a sort of a cult for teenage girls, which I think is what Platt is most associated with, like Catherine, as you were saying, with like with the public, although it's become something that is ridiculed at that time. You know, that was relatively early on and I was relatively early on in my life. And so it was not seen that way at all. Um, and there is like this- there wasn't an extra layer of distance between it was just it only seemed tragic, but not tragic with a layer of misogyny. Yeah, there, there was no irony to it. Yeah, um, the yeah. misogyny was in fact, there was definitely misogyny in it. But it was the it was the kind of misogyny where you don't have any distance from the misogyny. You can't call it misogyny. There's no name for misogyny. We didn't even have a name for cutting like everyone was cutting themselves. And we didn't we thought of it as huh. <laughs> as a sort of a half-assed suicide attempt rather than as cutting. It was kind of a huh. strange cut. I mean, we were 14, 15 years old, so we weren't that sophisticated. But but anyway, I think like it's interesting because the plot has this social role, um, which like for obvious reasons was extremely important to my life, but I think was important to the lives of a lot of my friends as well um, as the embodiment of that form of what I want to call, um, well, I'm, I'm just going to turn it around and say that, that I think that in a way the, the cult of female suicide and female self-harm can be connected to the, the culture of nonviolent protest. It's a form of nonviolent protest, which was always about like going out and deliberately putting yourself in harm's way to get harmed in a way that could not be overlooked in a way that had to be seen and and plot in a way like she, her suicide which like this obviously was not her intention but what actually happened was that it amplified her voice and it amplified the things that she had to say about her life and about the reality of her suffering which could otherwise easily be dismissed you know she's like being the the poet's wife as opposed to the poet yeah, and, and just being, like, her suffering is essentially that her husband was cheating on her. Um, that's not something that is popularly taken seriously as a, as a serious harm, as a deep... I mean, she obviously had other problems in her life, but, but at that moment, like, what's happening is that kind of despair um, and, and, you know, her depressive illness. These are things which are dismissed when women suffer them. Definitely, especially uh, I think when there's motherhood involved, um, I I was struck by how many images of motherhood there there were in these poems, as um, both tender and um, violent and bloody. Um, 
and I think that maybe like when I was younger, I didn't, I didn't notice those because I didn't have kids, but it seemed very striking that a big part of why she is in the position she's in is because she's also like under a pile of babies and has been having all these pregnancies. Mm. Yeah. I feel like, um, the, the nervous breakdown, quote unquote, you know, we don't, we don't use that term so much anymore, but it was a real kind of template for, um, the expression of female pain in the mid century that it just kind of became available. Um, and I think, you know, kind of similar to the way like classical hysteria symptoms were (laughs) available, um, in the 19th century. Um, you, you kind of learn them from the culture and you realize like, Oh, this is a way that I could sort of opt out of, all these social responsibilities that I'm supposed to have. I can have a nervous breakdown. So if you can't handle being a mother, being a housewife, um, and I don't mean to diminish not being able to handle those, like those are, you know, often very terrible responsibilities that you don't actually want. Like that's what, like her husband is leaving her with the children. It's like she has to provide the childcare while he is um, out finding other partners. Um, Yeah. It was the, the worst possible time. I mean, um, yeah. And that was a like toddler the, and a baby. Yeah. It's like the quintessential experience of women in that era is the, the husband leaving them for a younger partner because domestic life is boring and that's valorized as a male experience. So, um, so one of the things about opting out that I actually, um, that struck me about the poem daddy, which has these, this Holocaust imagery uh, that I, I felt really uncomfortable about reading it because I was thinking like, this isn't your experience. This isn't yours. On the other hand, like maybe it is because like if her father is actually a Nazi, like fascism starts at home. um, I don't want to assume that, that she's not actually uh, personally touched by those experiences just because she wasn't actually in the concentration camp at the same time. He's not, by the way. He, oh, he wasn't? Okay. He's I dead, just obviously. Had... He wasn't. You know, he was not a Nazi. He, um, in fact, uh, he was like, and I don't know, even know why. I think just because he was German, he was like on some lists and investigated by the U.S. government. And so, um, so she's just... there's like, there's that weird connection, but he was totally not a Nazi. Like it's, it's, it is pure metaphor in that poem. Interesting. Metaphor falls apart because uh-huh. like she is opting out of, she's like, oh, I, I'm through. I'm done with this. And I was like, you know, pretty much the essence of the Holocaust is that you can't just opt out. You can't just decide when you're done and you've had enough. Um, and so I, I felt really troubled by that part of that poem. <laughs> um, and, but then I think that in this conversation now, it's, it seems, I don't know, the the actual option she has for opting out is still her own death. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it's not, it's not just our, uh, our like 2020 mores that make that poem uncomfortable. Like it was always uncomfortable for people. Um, you, you know, there were always readers and critics who were like, a lot of people interpret it literally to be about her father. And was like, you know, whatever your, whatever your father did to you, it was not the same as being in a concentration camp. So um, there's a sense of it's just totally taboo to, to make that comparison. Um, and, but I mean, I, I think that that is part of the power of the poem is that it's totally taboo. So, you know, whether you can <laughs> accept the, the tabooness or not is, is sort of personal, but 
um, she, yeah, she, she thought of herself as like, she just completely identified with all forms of suffering, you know, sort of for better or for worse. And so um, she like in, in interviews and things, you can hear her talking a lot about Dachau um, and Hiroshima as like, these are things that are very important to her because she just sort of identified with the suffering of the world. And so she felt entitled to, to use those, um, to use those events as kind of like metaphors for her own pain, which yeah, which a lot of people find just sort of like wildly offensive and not okay. <laughs> so did people find it offensive at the time? Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think even, you know, Ted Hughes was somewhat reluctant to um, to even publish like some of the poems, but she, like she had already recorded and possibly already published, I'm not sure, but she had already done like recordings for the BBC of the poem Daddy. And if you haven't heard them, they're really amazing. She has this great, like uh, totally uh, um, like affected trans, uh, transatlantic accent, <laughs> <laughs> which I would love to learn how to do someday. Uh, Sandy, I bet you could do it. I do um, sometimes, but I have no control over it. So <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's a curse. Like, actually, my husband says it's the most embarrassing thing about me for him is when I. <gasps> wow. Yeah, yeah, really. Like, and it's got some competition. It's not it's the only embarrassing thing I do. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting case of, I mean, maybe this is. Um, this is common, but yeah, there, there was absolutely resistance to, to Dottie right away. And, mm. you know, and yet like it, it's fame persists. So it reminds me of a line in uh, George Orwell's um, down and out in Paris and London, um, which I tried to find the line. I couldn't find it. So I'm going to quote it badly and get it wrong. Um, but he's talking about how terrible a job is that he has and how just miserable the work is and he says it's just like something that you would expect a woman or an Arab to do um, <laughs> and it's like he knows that that those are people who are doing this absolutely terrible terrible job this this form of work that's so just like ruinous um, it's like his analysis stops at the point where it's men like himself that have to do it and that it's, so it's like he can go into all of this analysis of how much um, you know, the boss is getting paid this much and the, you know, the, how the economy works, it all makes sense to him until the point that he has to sort of extend empathy beyond whatever boundary he's drawn of like who deserves to not suffer. Um, and I kind of think that Sylvia Plath is doing that also where she's like, I'm suffering just like these people that are known to suffer uh, bottomlessly and that's like what these words mean is suffering. Um, and it, yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's anything beyond just noticing that a lot of people do that. Um, Kurt Vonnegut does it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do think there's, um, yeah, to just maybe a little bit in her defense. Oh, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I don't I don't think she's necessarily trying to use it as um a plea for sympathy, you know what I mean? Like if you if you think the Jews suffered in the Holocaust, well, like think about me. I don't I don't think she even if that's sort of the effect because we know that in her actual life she suffered. I think when she came to the page, 
um, she, like, especially with a poem like Daddy, um, but I think also with, like, Lady Lazarus, those are almost, like, dramatic monologues. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's this very full dramatic persona that's being put on. And when she would talk about what those poems were about, she would never talk about her own personal experience. She would just say, oh, like, this is about a girl with an electric complex. That um, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Like, Lady Macbeth monologues. Yeah, yeah. And she did write some theater like not very successfully (laughs) um but and ted hughes did as well like they got a lot of work from the bbc which i guess was just standard then like if you were a writer you could kind of make a living by getting random jobs from the bbc and he would write radio plays and so like i mean she she kind of tried to write in every genre um she definitely wanted to write more fiction than she did and she did write a lot that is just not all as famous as the bell jar Mm -hmm. but i mean i think that she thought of poetry as being a very fictive voice and didn't necessarily expect that people would read the speakers of her poems as being her. And I think that they're often literally not her, like they draw on experience, but it is transformed. And so I don't read, um, you know, whether or not it's appropriate, (laughs) the metaphor, like I don't read daddy as being, you know, sort of like literally Sylvia Plath's voice. I mean, that's really in uh, in competition with the idea of confessional poetry, right? Yeah, and she was she was very vocal about sort of like, oh, it's not enough to just kind of um, like dump your experiences on the page. You have you have to use them and transform them. They definitely seem much more shaped. I don't. I I wouldn't say that they're just artlessly kind of screaming. Um, but that's really interesting about um, thinking of them as like inhabiting a character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also like a thing about Sylvia Plath's po- well about the poetry in Ariel, um, just just shifting over to the issue of style, which we haven't really approached yet, is that definitely like, everything in her poems is very strong, and I think that the use of tastelessness is a strong choice. It's a choice that <laughs> like absolutely stops you, that focuses your attention, that clobbers you in the, in the face. But then in, in other ways, like even like the amount of assonances she uses, the repetition at the end of poems, the, the internal rhymes, like she's, she's using a lot of stuff that's really kind of tussling with the reader and, and, not allowing you to sit back and have a detached approach to the poem. That actually reminds me of uh, what Elisa said about Yeats being a, an influence where I think Yeats sort of reaches into the past more, but wants that uh, sense of plain language that regular people would use and sort of mm. plain storytelling that, um, that regular people would use. Is this like, is this your understanding of Yeats also? I'm not just saying something's completely wrong about mm-hmm. Yeats, right? Okay. Um, yeah. But I think <laughs> using the language and the, um, the sort of uh, visceral um, imagery of the contemporary time. Yeah, and I think that was also partially like Ted Hughes and co, that influence. Mm-hmm. Um because before that, she had been a little bit more formal and 
um, kind of like naughtily formal. I, I find her early poetry often just sort of like dense and impenetrable. Like, you know, is it in okay like and people are fighting against not N A U G H T Y. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it did later get naughtier. <laughs> um so you know how um we always kind of try to fight against like that kind of high school level of poetry education where you're taught that the poem is some kind of riddle or puzzle and you have to figure out what it really means um i, I feel like platt's well really throughout her um career but especially her early poetry it often does feel like this riddle that you have to figure out what she's actually talking about and then she had to sort of learn she had to unlearn that and learn how to be more direct and you can see her like in the later work especially in um like 1962 when she was just sort of peak furious <laughs> and bitter like she starts using words like tits instead of breasts or um like crap you know yeah. and there's that poem lesbos which I believe was like banned in some versions. Um, like I think it has the word crap in there a couple of times and that sounds mild, but it, like in, in context, it just sounds really aggressive. Like I think it's like the phrase baby crap and it just, it, yeah, it's like, it's, she's, she's kind of wanting to punish the reader a little bit or punish herself. And she, um, I know that she wrote in her journal when she first started reading like Ted Hughes and all his, his friends, when she first started reading their work, she said, I, I've got to get rid of these archaic cutie tricks that I've oh, been using. Wow. So I actually had a question about that. Do you guys know if um, thalidomide was known to cause uh, birth defects when she titled the poem? Okay. Yes, okay. it was. There's a little there's a little note about that in my um, in my collected. Um, it's not here, or at least um, not in the part that I was reading um, of my restored edition. Um, but yeah, that also actually struck me as a very aggressive uh, tits and crap kind of uh, name for a poem. got a, a question actually about the history of confessional poetry and where Platt falls within it which is like it's I'm not I'm really not a person who is a poetry knower so um, but I find Platt quite difficult a lot of times and I and I feel like there's a there's a f- form of confessional poetry that's fairly common where the confessional aspect actually makes it more opaque to the reader that it's relating to some experience that you need to already know about before you can understand the poem, like the title poem, Ariel. If you don't know it's mm-hmm. about her riding a horse, then you will never know unless somebody tells you, I think. Um, so is that something that was just coming to be then or was it something that's already present that Platt is using yeah, I feel that way about her her poems too. That um, they're they're often difficult to understand if you don't sort of have the footnotes or know hmm. the corresponding biography. Um, just trying to flip through and think of a couple of other examples of that. Which um, seems like the opposite. It's kind of a reverse confessional where you need the confession before the poem. Right. I don't. I I don't think that she would have, you know, kind of identified as a confessional poet, mm. though I'm also 
I'm not sure that that term was in super heavy use before she died either. Um, but yeah, I mean, knowing, knowing her biography helps so much in a lot of these poems. I just, and often it kind of, it's, it's a good counterweight to remind you that they're not literal. Like there's the one Medusa, which is sort of, you know, interpreted as being this hateful screed against her mother which, you know, she often had a lot of antipathy toward her mother because who doesn't? But she was also very close to her mother. And so that wasn't like a full portrait of their oh, relationship. Oh, so one thing that I was thinking about uh, antipathy toward parents is that the, um, the way she describes herself in relation to the children. Um, I, I don't see, and maybe someone else does, but I don't see her being aware that she could be that figure in the child's life. Like I see her being disturbed mm. by um, mm-hmm. the physicality of uh, motherhood and pregnancy and all of those things. And I see her being tender toward the babies, but I don't see her as perceiving them as people who would perceive her as a possibly uh, hostile force. <laughs> I don't know. Does yeah. she, I almost feel as if she is conceptualizing all parents as that hostile force and not even framing it as a question that she would worry about with regard. I don't know. That's just, this is just a personal impression though. It's not something that I can defend as an, as an opinion. That she is actually inhabiting the, the mother and the father characters as well as the child characters. Yeah. Yeah, that it's part of the hopelessness of the aerial world is the inevitability mm. of guilt. Yeah, that has the ring of truth to me. There, It is archetypal. I mean, she worshipped her father, and there was no reason for her to do any kind of um, like reassessment of him late in life and decide that, oh, actually, I hate him, and I think he was a Nazi. There, there, there was, like, nothing. <laughs> there was nothing driving that. She, it, was, it was really a total metaphor. I, I think it's totally yeah. about Ted Hughes, you know? Like, she, mm, just, she, yeah. just needed to, she just needed a good metaphor to be able to talk about how utterly enraged she was at Ted. Well, and that's probably um, the person that she was referring to as daddy most often. If she had young children, she was probably referring to him as daddy uh, – to the children. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. She did refer to him that way and, um, and letters and things. Yeah. I don't know where to start with that. I was, I was, uh, very struck by, by how much I liked also. I thought a lot of it was a lot more beautiful than I had expected. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Why were you not expecting it to be? I just remembered it being so confronting. I, I just mm. forgot how um, how lovely some of it is. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I expected energy. Had you, had you read it many times since the first time you read it or? Um... I read it a lot when I was young and then, you know, there's like decades of gap and now I'm reading them again. And I was, I was really astonished how well I remembered them and how much, I remembered and how many of the poems felt familiar and, and still kind of important to me. Mm-hmm. And do you have a favorite? I, 
Well, it's changed a lot. Like when I originally read them, my favorite was Lesbos, but that was because I was at that time in love with a girl and I thought that it was about that experience, which I don't think is true. But um, <laughs> whereas this time I think the ones I liked best were um, the bee poems. I loved the bee poems this time, mm. which aren't yeah. particularly tied to anything but my appreciation of what she did with the bees. Yeah, those are so interesting. You know, her father was an entomologist. Do you know that? Oh, no. I didn't know. Yeah, her father actually wrote a like a very well-known, well-regarded book about bees <laughs> called um, Bees and Their Ways. And so that's just, you know, another example of she actually sort of worshipped her father. Um, I think she was kind of trying to resurrect him with that. She really did that. She got a bee box. And- I really liked the... Oh, I was going to say that I really liked the Ellen one. I love that one, one too. We were reading, um, I, I think it had that, that, um, that feeling of the almost like Shakespearean monologue that, that you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's, um, it's um, in the voice of an elm. And I think the original title mm-hmm. might have been The Elm Speaks, and then she changed it to Elm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I love that too. I think uh, this also has some kind of Stevensy parts, and it's, this is my favorite example of that thing that she does a lot in Ariel, which is like a little tripling, uh, kind of like a nursery rhyme tripling, um, where the, the, that last line, yeah. that kill, that kill, that kill. Mm. I also really liked the um, morning song that starts. It starts uh, this organization, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that starts love set you going like a fat gold. Yeah, watch. that's so beautiful. Um, yeah, it's just so beautiful, and the image of the um, the light of the dawn out the window. The window square whitens and swallows mm. its dull stars. Um, the idea of one light source sort of swallowing up another form of light. Um, it's like, gosh, that's just beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned to you, Catherine, that I, um, I've i always had her collected poems, and so I had never read the aerial poems in her order until last night, actually. <laughs> I, lo- I, I looked up that order and went through and read them in that order, and it was so interesting. Um, it's like I thought that some of the transitions were a little strange and jarring, and like to me, it makes more sense to read them chronologically, which is how they're, they're organized and her collected. What was a, a transition that you found strange in her organization? Oh, I seem to remember that either either after Daddy or Lazy La- Lady Lazarus, one of the really, um, you know, one of the really kind of like mind erasing poems. <laughs> um, there was something yeah. just sort of like light versy right after it. Uh, oh, I think it's, um, yeah, Daddy is followed by the poem your which is like an early an, a much earlier poem um i thought that that was a strange transition but like it, it, you can sort of see why like sometimes that happens like an, on an album like a really intense track will be followed by kind of like a light nothing interlude type track mm-hmm. um but yeah i just i found it jarring for me i'm like well if we're if we're if we're getting into into rage and bitterness let's stay in rage and bitterness another thing i was surprised to to find which i did not, I was not com- conscious of at all, was how much Platt's style had affected my own style. 
So mm. a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, um, like the the odd way the poems scan and the the way the rhymes crop up out of nowhere, it's stuff that I do in my prose sometimes, and I think it's stuff that must be deeply implanted in me from reading Platt intensely when I was very young. our episode on Ariel from 1965. Thank you so much to Elisa Gabbert for joining us and to Adam Baer for our music. We'd also like to thank Lit Hub for hosting us. You can tweet us at LitCenturyPod or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Next week we'll be talking to writer and director Isaac Butler about Blues for Mr. Charlie, um, a play by James Baldwin from 1964. So, bye till then.